welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 217. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, this week's show, we're hanging out with zombies. Hope you brought your shotguns. Nah, you don't really need them. These ain't your typical undead we're dealing with here. Because this ain't a typical podcast you're dealing with here. First, we're starting off with Brain-Eating Bears in part one of the conclusion to our fake nature documentary series, In Search of the Brain-Eating Nandi Bear. Then we've got a great drabble and feature story bringing you up close and personal with The Walking Weird. Then we're going to finish up with Nandi Bears to close out the show. Do hope you enjoy. We bring you live now to Drabblecast's very own in-house cryptozoologist, Connor Chodesworth. Search of the brain-eating Nandi Bear with Connor Chodesworth. They are an enigma, a mystery wrapped in a paradox. They exist as an impossible contradiction and the more I investigate them, the more questions they seem to raise. Corn nuts. Corn or nut. Tasty snack or appalling medical condition. There are no answers. There are only questions. Perhaps even more ambiguous, alluring, and terrible, however, are the strange creatures that for the past three weeks our research team has sought to identify. The brain-eating Nandi bear. On a continent otherwise completely bereft of other species of bear, the Nandi seems an impossibility. They can be identified by smell, reputed to be something like a mixture of two-part fruit roll-up, three-part nightmare. They can be identified by sound, the peculiar shh noise they are known to make whenever they hunt or Shakira sings. And finally, they can be identified by sight. The fact that they are huge, half-decomposed zombie bears with slathering mouths full of cerebral pudding. But things aren't always as they seem, are they? Some words, for example, look and sound the same, yet have different meanings. Other words even mean the opposite of themselves. And opposite is a synonym for antonym, which makes the antonym of opposite another way of saying the word synonym. Our team began experiencing setbacks from the very beginning, as most of them immediately died in a violent plane crash. Might be with hardly any remaining supplies and almost no knowledge of the surrounding area, our remaining crew joined forces with local witch physician and douchebagologist Wolfgang von Tainthammer. In the grand tradition of entrapping deadly mysterious beasts with ridiculously slapdash constructed sex dolls, we went to work immediately constructing a tar baby. Not the racist kind, mind you. The sexy kind, covered in axe body spray and long circus clown balloons vaguely resembling the eccentric floppy tubular breasts ubiquitous to African women. During the full darkness of a lunar eclipse, we were attacked by what decidedly must have been a clutch, I don't know, a shoal, 
a harem, a harem of Nandi bears. The attack quickly subsided as the eclipse passed over, and by the new light of the pale moon, we saw what appeared to be our producer, Hank, undead, stark mad and mooing. But we were so wrong. Wronger than Shakira molesting the air and calling it singing. We'd captured a legendary and menacing spirit of the local folklore. An ethereal, shape-shifting bed midler monster, enraged and looking for a host to inhabit, a body to possess. In an attempt to lure Taint Hammer towards it, the beast transformed into a facsimile of Erica, my topless girlfriend endowed with the beautifully flapping and curiously pliant boobs customary to temperpedic pillows and women from this region of the world. Taint Hammer, his jealous and secret love for my shorty revealed, rejected the artificial bait Erica in favor of the real one, kidnapping her just as the furious smoke monster filled the entire vicinity with a tempest of dark, swirling wind. And here, here we are now, just me, the fake Erica, and our dim-witted, slack-jawed, fat-ass cameraman Jeff. What? Oh, shut up, Jeff. If you were any more bland, unexciting, and filled with cholesterol, you'd be on an Applebee's menu. Uh, Erica? Yeah. Oh, oh, give it up, smoke monster. I know it's just you. You'd have better luck convincing me that everybody was kung fu fighting. I mean, everybody? Yeah, not buying it. Just change your shape into something other than Erica, if you would. All you're doing is making me miss her more. Ah, Erica, I feel like I totally took you for granted. Like the 80s and all the jokes we passed up while there was a guy named Magic Johnson running around. <laughs> Seriously, Magic Johnson. <laughs> Dear Lord, imagine if the Washington Wizards had gotten a hold of that wand. I'll never forget that fateful day when first I met her. That day on the beach, after washing ashore and regaining consciousness, vomiting salt water, squinting up and seeing for the first time those, those weird-ass boobs hanging still like the mighty pendulums of time stopping. I didn't know what to think. Usually, whenever life hands you melons, you, you wonder if you have dyslexia, but not this time. Instead, I wondered, if I had just fallen in love. Summer
snow like the pants on a gangster Sagging like a pair of pantyhose filled with suffocating hamsters Never seem to end like this trend of teen vampires Never seem to start like lawnmowers and campfires They keep going on like a 97 Camry Like Duncan MacLeod, always fighting through the centuries The alpha and omega melons, eternities Drooping in gravity like cumulus manatees Forever flapping and flopping and floating through infinity Unscathed from the mighty boat propeller of entropy Eternity would never seem long to me if I spent it with you and your long ass memories. So you see, smoke monster, you might look like Erica, you might even look like a Nondi bear if you want, but you're nothing more than a homonym. You're not the same thing. It's like my cousin, John Travolta, always used to say, legally changing your name to impress girls doesn't work as well as you might think. Why, you turned back into Bette Midler. Oh, thank you, smoke monster. That's much better. I know you're not the real Bette Midler, but at least... I know that I know. I can't tell you how often in my life I've been disappointed, how much time I've wasted chasing after things that didn't exist or weren't what I thought they were, weren't as they seemed. Days wasted in elementary school looking for a, a goddamn bee that could spell. So many nights wasted in college traipsing through back alley clubs, determined to find this piano man and to hear him sing us all his fabled siren song. Lies, all lies and fabrications. People keep saying mothballs smell bad, but where do they keep finding these goddamn moths with balls? And, and why, why do they keep sniffing them? I mean, fool me once, you know? <gasps> What's that? It's Taint Hammer's Blackberry. He must have dropped his phone in the commotion of the escape. Let's just see what we have here. A text from Barry. Sup, foo. Um, hmm. Need to act natural here so he'll think I'm Taint Hammer. Let's see. Taint Hammer usually calls Barry and asks a lot of questions. Um, Barry, are mothballs real? Yes. Know what I'm saying. Okay then, um, is it weird that people smell them? What does he say? WTF? What? Why would anybody abbreviate Whiskey Tango Foxtrot? It takes away the whole freaking point of Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. What the fuck, Barry? Another one. 
Yo, are you still on the way to the crib, i.e. secret scientific research base? Wait, did I just read that correctly? I.E. secret scientific research base? Sweet, stinky moth nuts made of corn. Now he insists on abbreviating the Latin id est, which in effect means in effect to I.E. Oh, these kids and their damn cell phones and their text message abbreviations. I before E unless after C, asshole. And before O, if McDonald has a farm first. Never on their own. Okay, settle down. Happy thoughts. Happy thoughts. Um, yes. Ja, ja, I'm on my vey. Yes. Shit just hit the fan over here, so, so, had to move my fan somewhere else with less ballistic shit flying around. Anyways, got mixed up, took a wrong turn at the dense trees and foliage text me the Addy again so I can Google Maps it. He says, K. What? Now's not the time for potassium. I need the address. Aha, and here it is. The address. All right, make haste. Come on, Jeff. You can keep breathing almost exclusively from your mouth when we get there. We have to go save Erica. Spoke Midler? You want to come with us? You want to help? Well, yes, the more the merrier, I agree. In concept, but still the logistics alone of seriously getting everyone kung fu fighting, it's 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 just hard to believe. There you have it. Part two of the conclusion again at the end of this week's show. I'm sure you're either on pins and needles or just now joining us after skipping forward a chapter in the podcast. It's all good. If you like the song, National Geographic Boobs, you can find the MP3 available for free download in the Drabblecast archive, linked off our main page, drabblecast.org. Where, if you're into funny and ridiculous music of that vein, and you don't have my CD yet, you can snag not one, but two copies, one signed by moi for yourself, and another for, perhaps, your cousin John Travolta's birthday, all for the ultra-low price of ten bucks. Click the Norm 2 for 10 button again off drabblecast.org. Okay. Drabble time. This week's 100-word story is called Their Stock is Down, But They Will Not Die, and it comes to us from Drabble Master Nathaniel Lee. Nathan, in his first Drabble casting appearance since becoming submissions editor, hello, conflict of interest, is a 29-year-old phone monkey living in Charlotte, North Carolina. He writes a 100-word story on most days, and you can find his microfiction at www.mirrorshards.org, and his macrofiction at several venues around the web, including Pseudopod and Daily Science Fiction. Edwards gestured at the screen with his laser pointer. He said. The room murmured in agreement, heads nodding. Jacobson's lower jaw fell off, but he didn't notice. What good will it do to invest in real estate? The only thing those assets can do now is lose money, Thompson said, with the air of a man who knows he is tilting at a windmill. No, said Edwards. Thompson shook his head as everyone shuffled out of the meeting room. Sometimes I feel like I'm the only one with a functioning brain, he said. Brains, said Jacobson, perking up slightly. 
There may be trouble ahead But while there's moonlight and music and love and romance Let's face the music and dance And for our feature story this week, we bring you Followed by Will McIntosh. Will is a Hugo Award winner and Nebula finalist whose short stories have appeared in Asimov's, where he won the 2010 Reader's Award for Short Story, Strange Horizons, and Science Fiction and Fantasy, Best of the Year, and others. His debut novel, Soft Apocalypse, was released in 2011 by Nightshade. His second novel, Hitchers, will be out in 2012. A New Yorker transplanted to the rural South, Will is a psychology professor at Georgia Southern University. In 2008, he became the father of twins. Followed first appeared in John Joseph Adams' The Living Dead, and may possibly be turned into a comic book in the near future. Not to mention last year it was made into a short film that's been making the rounds at various film festivals, winning Audience Choice Award at its first stop. You can find it by searching for Followed on IMDb. Alright, without further ado, we bring you Followed by Will McIntosh. She came wandering down the sidewalk like any other corpse, her herky-jerky walk unmistakable among the fluid strides of the living. She was six or seven, Southeast Asian, maybe Indian, her ragged clothes caked in dried mud. Pedestrians cut a wide berth around her without noticing her at all. I thought nothing of her, figured the person she followed had ditched her in a car, and she was catching up in that relentless way that corpses do. I was downtown, sitting outside Jittery Joe's coffee shop on a summer afternoon. There were still a few weeks before fall semester, so I was relaxed, in no hurry to get anywhere. I returned to the manuscript I was reading, and didn't think another thing of the corpse, until I noticed her in my peripheral vision, standing right in front of my table. I glanced up at her, turned, looking over my shoulder, then back at her. Then, I realized... She was looking at me, with that unfocused stare, with those big, lifeless brown eyes, as if she was claiming me. But that couldn't be. I waited for her to move on, but she just stood. I lifted my coffee halfway to my mouth, set it back down shakily. The woman at the next table, dressed in a green hemp dress, her foot propped on an empty chair, looked at me over the top of her paperback with thinly veiled disdain. When I caught her eye, she looked back down at the paperback. I lurched to my feet, the metal chair screeching on the brick pavement, my barely touched coffee sloshing onto the table, and retreated down the sidewalk. I ducked into the anonymity of my parked car and lingered there, tracking the corpse in my rearview mirror as she lurched toward me. Maybe it was a mistake, a misunderstanding. Maybe she'd walked right past me. My Volvo Green was a fuel cell vehicle, dammit. The most efficient I could afford, not an energy pig like most corpse magnets drove. How could I have hooked a corpse? I cracked my window, waited to see if she would pass. I heard her little feet scuffling the pebbly pavement as she drew close. She stopped three feet from my door, turned, and faced me. Her face was round and babyish, her chin a tiny knot under her slack, open mouth. She was so tiny. 
I started the car and pulled out, almost hitting another car. As I drove off, I saw my corpse in the side mirror, lurching down the sidewalk, patiently following whatever homing device the dead used to track those they claimed. Every few minutes, I pulled back the curtain to see if she was coming, and then there she was, walking along the side of the road with her head down. She turned up my driveway, stubbed her toe on the thin lip of asphalt, stumbled, regained her tenuous balance. She struggled stiffly up the three steps to my front door and stopped. I dropped the curtain, got up, and locked the deadbolt. I phoned Jenna. I have a corpse, I said as soon as she answered. Oh my God, Peter, Jenna said. There was a long pause. Are you sure? Well, Christ, I wailed. She's standing on my fucking doorstep. I'm pretty sure she's mine. I don't understand. You don't deserve a corpse. I know. Jesus, I, I can't believe it. I just, I can't believe it. Jenna consoled me by ticking off the evidence, all the ways I was not like other corpse owners. Then she changed the subject. I wasn't in the mood to talk about university politics or how was your day, minutia, so I got off the phone after making plans to have dinner with her. I tried to distract myself by turning on the TV. I checked the stock market. The Dow was up almost 3%, the Nasdaq too. I switched to the news. The president was conducting a press conference in a field of newly constructed windmills on her decision to pull out of the Kyoto 3 Accord. We're doing everything we can to curb global warming, she said to the cameras, but we will not bow to foreign pressure. The American way of life is not negotiable. Blah, blah, blah. Even with the news cameras picking the best angles, a few hundred of her corpses were visible, cordoned from her by a phalanx of blue-suited Secret Service agents. The corpse of an emaciated four- or five-year-old black boy, his distended belly bulging as if a kickball was hidden under his skin, wandered through a breach and headed toward the president. He was swept up by an agent and returned to the crowd. But gently, the administration didn't want to give Amnesty International any more ammunition. I tried to take solace in the president's corpses. She had eighty or ninety thousand, piled twenty deep around the White House gates, more arriving daily. I only had one. I flipped through the channels. Strange how most TV shows depicted the world as corpseless. Nary a corpse to be seen on the sitcoms, cop shows, interactives. All those people walking the streets, working, cutting up with friends, and not one of them followed by a corpse. Had there really been a time when there were no corpses? I could hardly imagine it anymore. I pulled back the curtain, looking at her standing motionless in front of my door. I couldn't help myself. I wondered if there were clues on her to tell me who she was or how she died. Some sort of evidence that the cosmic actuarial table that sent her to me had made an error. I went to the door and opened it. She came in, her bare feet tracking dirt on the hardwood floor. Look around, I said with a sweep of my hand. I don't have that much stuff. I gave her a tour. Solar power? Fluorescent bulbs? I pointed out all my furniture was used. She didn't look, only stared up at me. I tried to buy locally grown food. I voted for the One World Party. Nothing. I scanned the room for more evidence. What did I do? I asked her empty face. Tell me what I did. She'd been a cute kid. I pictured her laughing, running, playing hopscotch on the sidewalk like my sister used to. 
I pictured her drinking brown water out of a dirty metal cup, lying in bed, dying of typhoid or dysentery. Maybe her family couldn't afford a bed. Maybe she died on a straw mat on the floor of the corner of a dirt hut. I let a familiar indignant anger rise in me at the injustice of it. She was so completely silent, standing there, unmoving, not breathing. She's going to be with me for the rest of my life, I thought. How could I possibly stand that? I sat in my recliner in the living room. She stood in front of me at arm's length and stared. I took a good look at her, skinny legs with bony knees, very brown feet, long black hair littered with leaves and twigs. Her red, mud-caked shorts had a single front pocket. I reached over and, flinchingly at the stiff, cold feel of her flesh, felt around in her pocket with two fingers. There was something in it. I fished it out. It was a button, a shiny new button gunmetal gray with veins of teal snaking through it. I turned it over. It was cool and smooth, unmarked, the kind of thing a little girl might carry around if she didn't have any Barbies to play with. I lifted her dirty hand by the wrist, turned it palm up, put the button in her hand, closed her cold fingers around it, and gently lowered her hand back to her side. The button clattered to the hardwood floor. Is she there? Jenna asked. I nodded. My corpse stood outside the restaurant door, staring in at me through the plate glass. I should have picked a restaurant farther from my house so I could eat before she reached me. Just ignore her, Jenna whispered. An elderly couple opened the door to leave, and my corpse came in, as much unseen as ignored, not like a lost dog, but like a block of wood or a wisp of autumn wind. She came and stood in front of me, staring, a pretty button tucked in her pocket. Jenna kept eating as if nothing had changed, though she examined my corpse out of the corner of her eye. I forked a half-spear of asparagus and lemon butter to my mouth, chewed and swallowed, felt it lodge in my throat. Mine was not the only corpse in the establishment. There were about ten, actually. Two stood by the bar, their eyes in shadow under the dim light of the stained glass lamps, their filthy rags out of place among pressed pants, white shirts, polished wood and chrome. An attractive, well-dressed, thirty-something couple had three of them hovering around their table, like their own personal waitstaff. One was an old, stooped Asian man, another a twelve-year-old black girl, a third a five-year-old who could have been my corpse's long-lost sister. Jesus, they must be living like complete pigs to rack up so many corpses. The door opened and another couple left. An infant corpse crawled in, her back foot just clearing the door as it closed. She was nude, her jerky crawl reminded me of a turtle. She made a grunting sound as she labored across the floor, stopped in front of the already well-attended couple, plopped under her butt, staring up at the woman. The woman kept eating her paella, one of the restaurant's specialties. The man said something, and she laughed, covering her mouth. Out of the corner of my eye, I thought I saw my corpse glance down at my plate. I jerked my head around and looked at her intently. Her eyes were glazed and fixed on my face. What's the matter? Jenna said. Don't stare at her, she hissed, as if I'd picked my nose. What? What is it? I'd swear she just looked down at my plate, I said. Do you want to split a dessert? She asked. 
I wondered if I had imagined that quick, furtive glance. Probably. You go ahead and get one. I'm pretty full. I put my fork down. My blackened salmon hardly touched. When I got home, I sat at the kitchen table and wrote a $3,000 check to the World Hunger Fund. I usually sent them $50 or so. Three grand hurt, but I could afford it. Looking up, I was startled by a face staring in through the kitchen window. Her face. Until now, she'd stood facing the windowless front door. Evidently, she could learn. She stared, unblinking. She never blinked. I guess I'd noticed, but it hadn't fully registered until now. As I worked the check into an envelope, I found myself holding it so my corpse could see it. I wondered, was the little girl still in there, aware of where she was and what was happening, or was she just an empty shell? I tore up the check and wrote another for $10,000. That much I could not easily afford. I walked it to the mailbox. It was a beautiful night. The moon was full, the crickets and cicadas deafening. Two houses down and across the street, the corpse of a tall, scrawny black man squatted, peering with one eye through the lighted crack of a drawn shade. My corpse came around the house, pushing through the high-waist grass and native weeds, another testament to my green sensitives, another reason why this corpse was a mistake, and met me on the way back. She followed me to the front door. I closed it in her face. I got up early the next morning after a mostly sleepless night. I pulled up the shade, and there was her little round face. She was just tall enough for her nose to be above the bottom of the window frame. Shit. I thumped my forehead on the molding, fought back a hitching sob. I had really hoped I could buy her off. Get the hell away from me, I shouted through the closed window before yanking the shade back down. While I showered, I pictured my corpse waiting patiently outside the window. Why couldn't it have been a man, an old man with no teeth? Fall semester loomed. My first class was in five days. I couldn't imagine teaching with a corpse staring at me. None of the students had corpses, so mine was the only one in my 10 a.m. class. The students politely avoided looking at her, even though she stood barely three feet in front of me, her head craned to stare up at my face as I went over the syllabus. My hands shook from exhaustion and nerves as I held the syllabus. I'd been a wreck the night before, had four or five drinks to staunch my anxiety, took forever to figure out what I would wear. I debated whether to dress down, a t-shirt and jeans, to demonstrate that I was just a regular guy, that I lived simply and didn't really deserve a corpse. But would the students see through me, think I was being pretentious? I'd finally pulled out a pair of black jeans and my white shirt, the shirt I'd been wearing the day my corpse had shown up, actually. Smart casual, the sort of outfit I usually wore. Things got worse as I started to lecture. I tend to pace back and forth as I talk, and as I did, she shadowed me, taking two small, lurching steps for every one of mine. The scuff of her little feet on the linoleum floor set my teeth on edge. Bare feet scuffing on dirty floors made me nuts, the way some people go nuts at the sound of fingernails on a chalkboard or the feel of cotton balls. I stopped pacing. 
I kept losing my train of thought, stumbling over words. I made eye contact with one of my new students. She quickly looked down, pretending to take notes, though I hadn't said anything important. I was barely saying anything coherent, let alone important. Without realizing it, I found myself looking right at my corpse, as if I were lecturing to her. She stared back. I forced myself to look away at the blank white wall in the back of the room, realized I was pacing again, and she was pacing with me. Scuff, 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 jerking along like... like what? Like a dead child. I let the class out early and headed to my office in a fog, exhausted, hungover, wondering how I could possibly make it through my one o'clock class. She did her best to keep up. I could hear the scuffing behind me. A surge of anger tore through me and I wheeled, pointing at her, opened my mouth to speak. Her gaze flickered to my chest for a split second, then back up. This time I'd seen it, there was no doubt. Her eyes had dropped and almost, not quite, but almost focused. I saw that, I said, stabbing my finger at her. I was in the hall outside my office, confronting a corpse. Jack popped his bald head out of his office, took in the scene, pulled his head back inside. Embarrassed, I wheeled and headed into my office, leaving the door ajar, allowing her to follow. I stared down at her. Tell me what I did, I shouted, leaning down and pushing my face close to hers. I'm a good person. I don't deserve this. I wanted her to focus, to look at me, to listen to what I was saying. I saw the little pinkish-gray dollop dangling from the back of her throat. Below that, darkness. I yanked the onyx Buddha statue off my desk and hurled it over her head. It crashed into a bookshelf, shattering a framed picture of Yankee Stadium, scattering a half-dozen textbooks. Jesus, you okay? Jack called. I hefted my computer monitor over my head and slammed it to the floor at her feet. It split part way, popping and sparking. Then Jack was on me. I hadn't seen him come in, but he was behind me and had his arms wrapped around my chest. Calm down, calm down, he shouted. I struggled, tried to yank free. I'm not sure what I would have done if I'd gotten free. I truly hope I wouldn't have brought the computer console down on her head. I gave a final, violent tug. My shirt ripped loudly. Shh, shh. Jack said into my ear. You're okay. It's, it's okay. Shh. I started to cry. Jack held on until he felt me relax, then loosened his grip, kept his arms around me for a moment longer. Let me go. Jack and I didn't know each other very well. It added to the surreal feel as I stood in my demolished office, crying. Through a blur of tears, I saw a button lying on the floor by my corpse's foot. In a daze, I knelt and picked it up. It was her button, gray with veins of teal, unmistakable. How had it gotten out of her pocket? I think the shirt's a total loss, Jack said behind me, a little sheepishly. I looked down at my shirt. There was a long tear along the seam under the arm, and the front was flapped open. Three or four buttons had popped off. I guess you never look at the buttons on a shirt, even if you button them a thousand times. The buttons on my white shirt were gunmetal gray, with veins of teal. Quite unique. 
They weren't as bright and new as my corpse's button because they'd taken a few turns in the dryer. Gently, I lifted her hand and turned it over, ran my fingers over her tiny palm, over the pads of her baby fingers. Rough, not the fingers of a child who'd spent much time playing hopscotch. Is everyone all right? Maggie, from down at the end of the hall, stood in my doorway. Behind her, two more of my colleagues craned their necks, trying to see what was happening. There was rarely excitement in our department, maybe an irate student once in a while, but never shattered glass or exploding computer monitors. Everything's fine, Jack said. He was a good guy, I realized. I was still down on my knees, staring at the button, my eyes red and tear-stained. The crowd dispersed, trailed by two corpses. Jack squatted, put his arm around my shoulder. You okay now? I nodded. I'm not going to say I understand how you feel, but it must be awful. I nodded. If you ever want to talk, just knock. I nodded a third time. He patted my back and left. It was nearly time for my one o'clock class. I kept a sweater in the bottom drawer of my desk for days when the AC was cranked too high. I pulled the sweater over the ruined shirt, and as my head popped through, I thought I caught my corpse glancing down at the button lying at her feet. I stooped and retrieved the button, slipping it into her pocket next to the other, shinier one. I went around the corner to the bathroom, held the door open for my corpse when it started to swing shut on her. I washed my face and combed my hair, her watchful eyes reflected in the mirror. I yanked a couple of paper towels from the dispenser, wet them under the faucet, knelt and wiped the worst of the dirt from my corpse's chubby cheeks and forehead. I tried to comb some of the debris out of her hair, but it was hopelessly tangled. I shoved the comb into my back pocket and plucked the biggest chips out by hand. I glanced at my watch. Time for class. After retrieving a stack of syllabi and the class roll from my office, I headed into the airy central lobby, up the double flight of stairs, steadying myself with the silver metal handrail. Halfway up, I turned and looked back. My corpse was struggling up the second step, her legs too small and too stiff to make the climb easily. I went back down, wrapped my arms around my corpse, and carried her up the stairs. our story. Hope you enjoyed it. I sure did. I grabbed this author's commentary off johnjosephadams.com, the Living Dead site, which, if you're into themes relating to the undead, but explored in a fresh light, is definitely the place to go. Macintosh says that zombies are a way to face the existential terror we feel at the awareness of our own mortality. He says, I think people love zombie fiction because it explores that terror so directly. The dead are right there, in your face, and they're not undead beings with supernatural powers and sexy lives. They're corpses, and corpses scare the shit out of us. Followed is the result of a discussion Macintosh initiated in a graduate social psychology class he was teaching, in which he posed the question, if you knew you could save lives for $100 each, how many would you save? 
Macintosh pointed out that we probably can save lives for $100 or less, and we don't. And each of us has to live with that knowledge, or rationalize it away, or sell our cars. Now there's food for thought, rather than vice versa, you know, in zombie fashion. And this feels a little awkward coming immediately after that bit, but gotta say it. If you enjoyed this week's story, folks, enjoy the Drabblecast in general, you can help us out in a big way by making a donation to support the show. It's the financial contributions of listeners just like you who get this show for free and chip in anyways that keep this boat afloat. It's super easy and it makes a direct and instantaneous impact on what we're able to do on the show. Just hit up Drabblecast.org and click donate once or sign up for one of our automatic monthly subscriptions. We really appreciate it. Alright, so moving things along here. This week's 100 character story winner, congrats to Algernon Sidney is dead, a twitfic powerhouse returning to claim the twabbling crown this week. And here's his story. I opened up the bag of skin and set the screams free. Screams are the key ingredient. Remove them and these creatures die. Now that's another way of looking at things. Think you can write a good story using only 100 characters, not counting spaces? Give it a shot. Post it in our discussion forums in the TwitFix section. You might be next week's winner. If you are, we'll publish your story out in the Drabblecast Twitter feed for all our followers there to enjoy first before hearing up in the show. If you aren't already, follow us on Twitter at the Drabblecast. Also, if you're a fan of the pallid, mercurial Connor Chodesworth and his various offhand Connorisms regarding intriguing flora and fauna, you can follow him too at Chodesworth. And speaking of which, we're about to get back to the conclusion of our fake nature documentary miniseries In Search of the Brain-Eating Nandi Bear. If you enjoyed the series, you'll be able to get the complete, unabridged saga in our ancillary podcast feed, Drabblecast B-Sides, in the next week or so, where we run special bonus content, extra stories, and all sorts of weird, fun stuff. If you're not subscribed already, hit up the Drabblecast B-Sides link at the top of our page at drabblecast.org. I wanted to thank voice actor Mike Boris for playing such a great taint hammer in the series. Mike's a pro in every sense of the word, with super quick turnaround. If you're looking for a solid male voice actor, he's your guy, folks. Check him out at mikeborisaudio.com. Also, while we're throwing out plugs and thanks, this week's kick-ass episode art was done by John DeBurge, who, living in the densely populated suburbs of Chicago, will probably not survive the zombie apocalypse. But hopefully this bit of episode art will show our future undead rulers that he meant them no ill will. His work can be seen at jdeburge.deviantart.com. Alright folks, we'll let Connor take it away from here. Until next week, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you that the proper group collective noun for multiple bears is, interestingly enough, a sleuth. to the top-secret Nondi research facility. Just imagine if these walls could talk. Jesus, that'd be scary, wouldn't it? A talking wall? Okay, so here's the plan. First, Jeff, I'll need your drawing board to... Jeff, you, you did remember to bring the drawing board, didn't you? Oh, bloody hell, great, Jeff. That's just great. Well, I guess it's just back to the... Oh, goddammit! Or, yeah, Smoke Midler, I guess you could just materialize on the other side of the door and open it for us.
Sweet Nandis of Gandhi, what the hell is going on in here? This place is huge, and everywhere, bears, caged bears, and so many, literally a shitload, named after the 18th century French mathematician Jean-Francois Shitload. And the brains, brains, just everywhere. Why, in that cage there, in front of that little bear, brains to the brim of a quaint little honey jar that looks as though it's rather difficult, a bother perhaps, to entirely get into. And there, in front of that bear, brains stuffed into what appears to be some sort of picnic basket. Everywhere, brain-filled bowls of honeycomb, brain-filled bowls of sugar crisp, James Lipton in a brain-splattered Chicago sports jersey. Oh, the humanity! The poor little guys all just seem scared and confused, not interested at all in eating brains. We must set them free. But what's that over there in the corner? What's in that large cage that says, caution, top secret? Stop! <gasps> Taint hammer time. Oh, sweet mother of Montauk, seriously? Well, yee-haw, if it isn't the douches of hazard. Taint hammer, I knew I should never have trusted you. Follow your gut. It always turns out to be an asshole in the end. What is this place, Taint Hammer? All these bears and brains. I assume it's somehow more of your sly and devilish charlatanry? Ah, but you should never assume, Chordsworth. When you do, you make an ass out of Umi over there. <laughs> Why are you trying to abuse me, sir? No, I'm just trying to do my I'm job. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. However, for once, Chordsworth, you are not so far from the truth. But are you sure you're ready to hear? Opening Pandora's box often comes with a price. Lobster dinner somewhere usually, and market prices vary a bit there place to place. Decades ago, I created this top secret research station to monitor and track all Nandi bear activity in the region. However, upon first starting our highly sensitive electromagnetic surveillance equipment, there was an incident. There was our equipment punctured some sort of bizarre electronic pocket into the surrounding atmosphere, releasing high amounts of strange, volatile energy that has to this day interfered with our equipment's ability to properly function. All of our high-tech surveillance gear has become practically useless in tracking wild Nandy. I mean, we might as well be looking for a pair of three-legged skinny jeans. So I decided to, shall we say, change tactics a bit. My team of witch doctors and researchers have worked round the clock collecting bears from all over the world, trying to figure out a way to make them eat brains. All I need is but one single bear out of this entire skulk pod to eat just a little bit of brain, and I can document the data and bring the discovery back to my glorious motherland. Wait. So you've been the one taking villagers' brains all along in order to tempt regular ass bears into becoming, or at least looking like, supposed brain eaters? That's just ridiculous, Taint Hammer. It's like those drive-through ATMs that for some reason have braille written on them. You're sucking at the long, slinking teat of failure, my friend, and it's time to give up. Now where's Erica? Erica, my love, I thought I would never see your boobs again. Look at them going up and down, literally, both up and down, like staircases in an M.C. Escher painting. Not so fast, Chodes Worthless. 
I feel the time has drawn nigh to officially sever our little partnership. Prepare to be hewn asunder like the mythical levitating rainbow donkey. <gasps> a rainbow? Nine, a piñata. Piñata? Piñata. Piñata. I say piñata, you say... What's that you say, Smoke Midler? What, what do you hear? Oh no, is it Shakira? Wait, I recognize that sound. It, it can't be. The large, heavily fortified cell in the corner, labeled Top Secret, it's beginning to shake. And suddenly, faster than you can say, Lost had a convoluted cop-out ending. The swirling smoke midler is shooting across the room, phasing through the cell wall, and it's, it's gonna blow. Debris scatters everywhere and smoke fills the room. Standing before us is an enormous, bleary-eyed creature, blinking as though it had just woken up from a long, long nap, and is now looking for a delicious snack. What? No, no! Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, A, B, A, B, start! <laughs> Me? Or an appalling medical condition? <laughs> Moo! <laughs> Moo! <laughs> but was it a brain-eating Nondi bear that emerged from the cage? How can this be? How could they not have known? Rather than slurping out his cerebellum, this bear seems to merely have nipped Taint Hammer. Yet, yet now, almost instantly, the double-crossing German douchebrat has sprung wildly to his feet, and he's running in small semicircles, and he, he just darted out the side entrance into the wilderness, mooing hysterically into the night. Of course, we had it wrong all this time. Mad cow, it's a brain-eating disease. One that the Nondi simply transmits to its victims, just like oh, the ethereal Midler monster. You're, you're a Nondi bear, and you were right under our noses this whole time, like the balls of a mothman. But now it seems you've found your original body. Taint Hammer must have had it the whole time and been unaware, being that it was just a dull, empty Nondi sack. Our equipment punctured some sort of bizarre electronic pocket into the surrounding atmosphere, releasing high amounts of strange, volatile energy. That strange, volatile energy. That was you. Taint Hammer's equipment must have separated you from yourself, like meaning stripped from a word. And all this time you've wandered the jungles, a lost spirit, until now. And with that final arcane and esoteric riddle, the Nondi Bear rises and bounds out the main entrance of the compound, disappearing into the dark abyss of the Kenyan jungle. Holy shitballs, Jeff, do you know what this means? Nondi bears do exist, and we got it all on film. That big-ass Nondi came exploding through the wall of that cage, and that, 
that was the money shot, Jeff, and not the kind that you find spattered on the collarbone of some chick on the internet. The kind that, that makes your bloody career. Well, okay, I guess that could still apply to her. But you know what, Jeff? That Nondi wasn't the only one out there doing some soul-searching. I feel like I've found more than just a different type of bear, a magical bear. I feel like I've found a different type of Connor. One who's complete again, who believes in himself now, who follows his heart no matter what. And, and you know what, Jeff? Jeff? Erica? Erica, w where, where is everybody? Oh no. Erica, oh, tell me you didn't run off with... Oh, you've got to be fucking kidding me, Jeff? Seriously? That tottering pear-shaped hominid? Erica, for God's sakes, seriously? God, I should have known better than to ever trust a girl whose name is mentioned in Mambo Number 5. It's like, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, and you must have boobs. Boobs that hang like weird-ass, drooping Martian Muppets on Sesame Street. Yep, yep, yep. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. In a perfect world where every massage and every story has a happy ending, where hard work is always rewarded and paternity tests always come back negative, I'd have gotten the girl, gotten my revenge, and attained true success. But in the end, Taint Hammer got his comeuppance with mad cow disease, and I have the film that will make my career. Two out of three people curiously named Meatloaf agree. Two out of three ain't bad. Let's just have a little look-see at the camera footage, shall we? Hmm, lens cap seems to be on. <laughs> Let's just hope that it wasn't on this whole motherfucking time. Jeff, you squarely fat little congested shit, where are you? You had one job, one job. We, we have no actual documented visual footage, nothing of the Nondibear, the top secret research facility, the ethereal smoke middler, Erica's boobs, none of it, just a, a bunch of freaking audio. Audio? What the hell am I ever going to do with that? Release it on some shitty podcast or something? You think anybody ever listens to that crap? <laughs> no, no, of course not. And they're certainly never going to pay for it. I want a Nobel Prize, you hear me? A Nobel Prize, not some damn worthless... Parsec or whatever the fuck. Damn it, Jeff. Damn.